all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. We're right in the middle of a three-part series entitled Three Words from the Prophets. Last week, the word was this, you are loved. This week, the word is this, I will redeem. The third week, the word will be this, there is hope. All of this points to Jesus Christ and leads to our series entitled Rediscovering Jesus. But for today, the message I will redeem, it comes in multiple places and in multiple ways. I begin with this, a holy God. We see this in Isaiah chapter 6. I love the way that Max Lucado put it one time, speaking of Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah's encounter of God. He said this, some people boast about their vision of God the way they boast about seeing the president. Not so with Isaiah. When he saw God, he didn't update his resume. He begged for mercy. Isn't that telling? I will redeem. But first, Isaiah encounters the redemption that comes from a holy God. 
How did it strike him? Well, listen to the words. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs. With six wings they flew. With six wings they covered their face, and with six wings they covered their feet, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand that had been taken from the altar with tongues. With it, he touched my mouth, and he said, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I responded, Here I am. Send me. Am I worthy? No. But I've encountered the Lord. I've heard from the Lord concerning the redemption of his people who were in captivity. He is going to redeem, but he wants you to know, Isaiah, straight up front, that he's a holy God. And he wants you to know up front that the problem is that the people are not, and neither are you. That the real problem, your real need of redemption, is not to be redeemed from the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians or even later the gigantic empire of Greece or Rome in Jesus' day. That's not really the enemy. The enemy is sin. The oppression is on you because of sin. And I'm going to redeem you and my pathway to your redemption is going to be the forgiveness of your sins. That's the starting point. He basically says the problem is sin. Now, you know, to start out that way, to start sermon that way, to start any conversation that way may seem like it's overwhelmingly negative, a whole bunch of bad news. But the reality is it's not a whole bunch of bad news. It's just the truth. And as a matter of fact, as Jesus said, to know the truth is literally to set you free. To understand the condition is to understand the potential for the cure. Suppose for a moment that you knew a physician who addressed you and you had a disease that would inevitably and rather shortly lead to your death. And suppose that physician addressed you and said, my friend, there's nothing to worry about. Take your vitamins, get some sleep, go home. Would he be praised for such a diagnosis? Would anybody give him an accolade for being a kind person? No, maybe something like malpractice. Because he didn't deliver the truth. And he didn't hold out the cure. He had it. He knew the problem. He knew the cure. And he withheld the information. That is not a bit of good news, my friends. That's disaster. 
So Isaiah, looking at the condition of Israel, looking at the condition of the human heart, says, I've got some really bad news that is full of good news. You're the problem. You're wretched. You're sinful. And God is here to deliver you. Look how the angel purified me with that coal from the altar. I want to redeem you, people. And I want to redeem you by first setting the record straight. The problem is sin. And the solution is righteousness. The problem is you. And the solution is me. And the only way things are going to get better is if I transfer my, my righteousness to you. You don't have any. But if I give it to you, then you can be redeemed. And that's what I'm about as God. God says through Isaiah. First, you, you, you have a holy God, Isaiah 6. And then you have in the prophets an impossible situation. It comes to us in Ezekiel chapter 37. A wonderful, beautiful picture. Ghastly, but beautiful. Where Jeremiah the prophet, in this same era, is told by God, I want you to go out to this field right here. It's really a valley, and it's full of dry bones. And they're not carcasses of animals. They're dead, dry bones of human remains. And I want you to stand at the corner of the valley, and I want you to preach to the dry bones, and I want you to prophesy to the dry bones. And Ezekiel must have said, what in the world is this all about? God said, prophesy, Ezekiel. And Ezekiel begins to prophesy. And then the bones start to rattle. Man, I am glad I wasn't Ezekiel, because I'd have been out of there then, right? Dry bones are bad enough, but rattling dry bones that seem to be doing something, that spooks me out. Ezekiel sees bones, after he prophesies to them, start to rattle and to wiggle, and then come together, and then ligaments and sinew and flesh, and before long, this valley of dry bones in his vision is a mob of people standing, living, breathing God, in effect, is saying, Ezekiel, I want to tell you about an impossible situation. It's the situation that Israel's in. They're dead. There's no hope. They're like the dry bones. It's over. Sayonara to Israel. Except one thing, Ezekiel, just like I ask you to prophesy to these bones, I want you to prophesy to the people and through your word, because I am God, I am going to do an incredible thing. In an impossible situation, I'm going to bring back from the dead my people. And they were dead. They were good as dead. There was nothing left. There was a tiny remnant of people running around the nation of Israel. No cultivated fields. No legal system. No center of culture or religion or anything. It was destitute. And God said, it doesn't matter. I'm going to take that valley of dry bones and I'm going to make it live again. Why? Because I'm God and I redeem. That's what I do. So first we begin with a holy God. Second, we encounter an impossible situation. And third, oh, we hear a very, very important invitation in Isaiah 55. 
Isaiah speaking to the people that God will redeem. Isaiah speaking to the people that are good as dead says to them, come to me. This is God speaking, people. Come to me, all who are thirsty and weary and heavy laden. Your elbows are dragging the ground. You're absolutely defeated. You feel as good as dead. Come to me, and I'll give you living water. Come to me. I'll give you food for your soul. Come to me. But it's an invitation. Did you know? An invitation? Did you notice? God says, I want you to get up. You've got a part in this. There's other places where the scripture describes the sovereignty of God, and I understand the antinomy of this all, the paradox of it all, the seeming contradiction of it all, where God seems to do all the work and we do nothing. There's other paradigms. This is one of them where God says, it's time for you to listen to me and to come. I'm inviting you to come. Come to me. If you're thirsty, I can fill you. I can give you life. You know, people don't come and experience redemption frequently until they realize their condition. When they realize that they're dead, when they realize God is holy and his very presence could annihilate them, at that point, it's time to own up to the situation and to surrender and to come. And God says, if you're there, I'll forgive you, I'll restore you, I'll redeem you. In uh, many years of talking about these themes and talking to people one-on-one about the theme of redemption, I have rarely come across individuals, and I don't mean to suggest that others don't understand, but I really have rarely come across individuals who understand their desperate need and understand that they're utterly broken and dead and unrighteous and absolutely at the edge of death itself. I've hardly ever met people who understand that more than recovering alcoholics. Not long ago, um, I was on the web looking for a book that I thought I needed, and I encountered another book that I didn't know I needed. It was entitled Sober Mercies. It was a description of a woman who was, as she said, a raging alcoholic, but had hidden it for years. But, you see, this alcoholic was a very important member of her church. She knew the redemption story backwards and forward, surrendered her life to Christ, and still was in the throes of alcoholism. As a matter of fact, even though you don't know her, she was, oh, can we say influencer, power broker type? She was an editor for a large Christian publishing company, edited books for names you've heard of. Books concerning grace and mercy and God's love and Christian themes everywhere. And for years, as her children grew, 
All the way back to when she got married early on, she lived a life of an alcoholic. She describes a point in her life where she was absolutely, utterly overwhelmed. It was a sobbing heap on the floor of her house, begging for God's mercy. Let me say something else about her. She was remarkably insightful and told a story that included multiple times that she'd been on the floor begging for God's help. Many times where she said, I've got to have deliverance. But for some reason, by the grace of God, for some reason, this moment was the end of the road. This moment, she was truly broken. This moment, she really knew what it meant to say, I've got to be redeemed. And in that moment, she opened up and told the important people in her life, sought help through Alcoholics Anonymous, and got on a road to a remarkable recovery, not without its bumps in the road. And she tells that story too. Oh, as an aside, remember this woman knew all about Jesus? Knew all about grace? And still struggled? And it was the pathway of Alcoholics Anonymous. An otherwise, you might say, quasi-Christian, quasi-secular organization. It's often criticized by high-minded Christian people. It's not sufficient to the task. That's part of the story, too. She says, how could I Knowing Jesus the way I knew Jesus, begging for mercy the way I begged for mercy, how can I not recover? Why did I have to go through this pathway? And she begins to understand that the pathway, the pathway itself was Jesus. It was the grace of God who took her down this road, this particular road, so that she could be redeemed from inevitable death. It didn't destroy her faith. He renewed her in the faith in the God that she loved and loved her. I tell you that story because I don't know what the pathway, the exact pathway for each person's personal redemption is. But I believe in the absolute sovereignty of God that it is He and He alone who redeems. And somewhere orchestrating in the divine affairs of this human, personal, and absolutely divine God through Jesus Christ, we can't experience redemption. But we'll never experience it until we're at the point of Isaiah 55. And we accept the invitation. And we say, I'm starving here. I'm so parched, I just need a drop of water on my tongue. I'm finished, God. I'm ready to come to the banquet. Saddest story of all, of course, is the banquet that's offered and the invitation that's refused. Jesus tells such a story in the Gospels about people who were invited to a banquet by a king, and they said, no. 
I'm too busy. I got a wedding to tend to. I got fields to worry about. I got things in my life. Why do I really? An invitation from the king. The king said to his emissaries, so they're ignoring what they need. They don't even know what this is about, and they're scorning my invitation. Just go somewhere else. Just hit the road, guys. Go to the highways and the byways and the hedges and find anybody who will accept it. Because. You know what the parable is about? It's about God and Jesus Christ. Because I'm a God that wants to redeem. It's just absolutely a part of my nature. And I will reach out and redeem anyone who will come to me thirsty and dry and dead like bones. And I'll restore them. Because that's what I do. This message of redemption, it's not just in the Old Testament. It's a continuous theme that we find in the New Testament as well. In the New Testament, you find the word redemption in various forms 25 times or more. Seven different words used in Greek. The Greek language is very interesting. And five of those words refer exclusively or almost exclusively when it's said to redeem, to ransom of slaves. That's what the word very often means in the New Testament. So that thing continues. Five words related to the ransom of slaves, or sometimes in Greek language it was referred to as the rescuing of POWs from an enemy camp. What's the message? Well, it starts with Jesus. I came, he said, to give my life as a ransom for many. I came to be the person who actually buys slaves. I came to redeem that way. I'll give my life as a ransom for many, he predicted, and he did. But let's stop just for a moment and remind ourselves that redemption is something other than a getting out of jail free card, like Monopoly, huh? It's not that. But sometimes we've turned it into that. Oh, I dodged the bullet. Now I'm not going to die forever. Really? Is that all it's about? Not in the New Testament that's not all it's about. Of course, it's important to dodge death. It's important to inherit eternal life. It's important to be forgiven of sins. But that's not the whole story. Redemption in the New Testament and in the Old is not so much about getting off the hook. You know what it's about? It's about being purchased by another owner. You were in slavery, God says. Whether it's Egypt or Babylon, Assyria, Persia, or a slave to your own sins and conditions that you have created for yourself. You were a slave, and you were on the auction block. And redemption means that I'm going to buy you, and no longer will you have to serve that master. Now, you can serve me. No wonder Paul's so famous for talking about himself as a slave of Christ. 
It redefined slavery. Are you serious? I used to have to serve that. I used to have to serve sin and judgment and legalism and the law and the shackles have been broken and now I get to be a slave to Christ. What better story have we got to tell than that one? This is awesome. I'm now an emissary of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I'm actually his slave. Oh, the bondage of delight to be the slave of Christ, says Paul. It's a transference of ownership. It's a delightful new reality. It's redemption. You know, the prophets, um, when they speak of this theme of redemption, they frequently give us images. Jeremiah says, when this redemption takes place, the people are going to come home and they're going to be rejoicing, they're going to be dancing, they're going to be clanging together cymbals, they're going to be playing instruments. Remember the Psalms? They're like that. It's about redemption. Isaiah, in the passage we had read to us just a few moments ago, goes to another place. He said, it's so great, the trees of the hills are going to be clapping their hands. That's how huge this redemption is. And when Jesus, on one occasion, was scolded by the Pharisees for telling his, not telling his disciples and his followers to stop the Hosanna, he said, are you kidding me? If I tell them to stop, the very rocks are going to start crying out. All of creation rejoices over redemption. As a matter of fact, it's held in captivity, and someday will be completely and utterly redeemed, says Romans chapter 8. And it's a grand, glorious rejoicing day. Redemption is a pure delight when you're a slave and you know you're free. There's nothing more that could give you delight than that. That's our story. You know, I think that's why so much of Christian music is about rejoicing. It's about redemption. Uh, Just a fragment of it. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You've redeemed me by your grace. Another old school kind of hymn, sort of gospel song from my era. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed by His infinite mercies. A child and forever I am. Redeemed, redeemed. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Or maybe contemporary music. You know that better, right? Like one we sang, My Redeemer Lives. If you can't sing that, Without moving, you don't have a spiritual pulse. I'm sorry. That's what it's about. Or the one we're about to sing, an old school praise chorus that I love that says it better than any benediction I could give. How can I keep from singing your praise? How can I ever say enough? about you. Usually I pray at the end of a sermon, but I'm going to ask the band to come up right now. That's going to be our offering of praise, a prayer to God. How can I keep from singing your name? Because you have redeemed me completely by your grace. So stand with us and sing a song of redemption.